The scripture today is from James 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the, in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men. You are not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. About us, not <laughs> no. Talking about us, Chad might be asleep. I want him to hear that. Okay, wake up, Chad. <laughs> Truly, listen to these words. Okay. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Thank you. Is this about us? I mean, if you live in the U.S. and are on welfare, you are wealthier than 95% of people in developing countries. It's talking about the rich. It sounds pretty intense. It really sounds not so much like James, but Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, who became that angry prophet in the Old Testament. Is it talking about you and me? Because by the world standards, we are very rich. Is it talking about us? Well, not directly. If you study the passage carefully, it's really speaking to the crimes of godless materialists, but it also speaks to the curse that you and I can fall prey to when it comes to godless materialism. Now, God knows how vulnerable you and I are to this curse. That's why 2,000 verses in the Bible have to do with our attitude toward possessions. That's why five times in the Bible there are Um, five times as many references to wealth than to prayer. It's why Jesus spoke more about money than heaven and hell combined. It's why he said, don't lay up treasure on earth, lay up treasure in heaven, because where your treasure is, there will your, what? Heart be also. And he also said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And really based on what Keith just sang, What good does it do to gain the whole world but lose your own, what, soul? Again, this passage chronicles the crimes of godless materialists in the world, but it addresses the curse of being influenced by those godless materialists that even you and I who are believers can become a part of. And the more I study this, the more it it seemed like a crime story. And so we're going to break it down in that way to see what's going on here. Let's look at it as a crime story. We're going to talk about the arrest the charge, the testimony, the verdict, and the sentence. First of all, the arrest. Uh, Let's look at verse 1 here. Look here, you rich people, and look here there. It's an intense verbiage there in the Greek. It's really saying the jig is up, you're busted, you know, you're in trouble. It's a rough road ahead. This is your wake-up call. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the troubles ahead of you. All the severe troubles ahead of you. Now, maybe godless, materialist kind of people who are rich, have a lot of money, need a wake-up call. Uh, Sometimes the sleepiest people, the blindest people, the 
most dulled people you can find are people who are so rich and are dulled to other things and other people and other needs around them. Uh, you know, horses can fool you because it looks like they're standing up and wide awake, but they're sleeping. Hippos do the same thing. They could be in the water and appear to be awake while they are sleeping. Sometimes you'll meet people who are sleeping, standing up and going through the day. And maybe we can understand how dulled we are to the needs of people sometimes if we just look at any study germane to how we deal with money and how we perceive it. <clears throat> I just pulled out one. Let's go to the next one. This is from a UN study called The State of Human Development. The annual U.S. spending on cosmetics each year, $8 billion. The annual spending for basic education for all children in the world, $6 billion. We pay for cosmetics, $2 billion more. Annual U.S. and European spending on perfume, $12 billion. Annual spending on clean water for global citizens, all people, $9 billion. Annual U.S. and European spending on pet food, $17 billion. Reproductive health for all women, especially in developing countries where, where, where their lives are, are, are in, in dire straits often just because they're having a child, $12 billion. And the thing that's interesting to me is this comes from a 1998 study. Uh, I would, if I were a wagering man, I would wager that it's even higher now. Why? Because advertisers are experts. Media are experts in making us perceive another need that we have that we really don't need, but they do a great job of making us think we need it. And so we add one more thing that we think we need but really don't. And in the meantime, the needy people of the world, the authentically needy people, become even needier. And we fall prey to that curse. Let me show one other uh, piece of data here from that same study. Globally, the 20% of the world's people in highest income countries account for 86% of total private consumption expenditures. The poorest 20% account for only 1.3%. The 20% up at the top, that includes you and me. We buy 86% of stuff in the world. That's you and me. And then that lower 20% 1.3%. That's folks just, tr honestly, trying to get through the day, trying to survive. One out of every five of us. So we go back to verse 1 again, and he has a strong word for the godless rich. Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish. It's interesting the word groan there is used a lot in the Old Testament to speak to people who are inevitably going to face the judgment of God. It's an intense Word And it's in the present tense, so it's saying the misery that is already coming upon you. And we'll see how it's coming upon them because of some testimonies later on. But remember, and I hate to be pointing out at them as if we're not guilty, but the crime of godless people who happen to be blind to the needs of the world, who happen to be so materialistic, their crime can be our curse. Do you follow me? And I even hate to say they're because they're of the human race as well, but their crime can be our curse. Let's not be so judgmental against them because we fall prey at least to the curse of materialism. So you have the arrest and then you have the charge. Or I'll say the charges because it's plural. The way I would describe the charges are two, heartless injustice and heartless indifference. The first charge, what do I mean by heartless injustice? It's unjust gain at the hands of helpless people, innocent people. Most people in the Holy Land in James's day lived day by day. They were itinerant daily workers, and they lived on day-to-day -day wages. They literally needed their pay at the end of the day just to, just to be fed and feed family. 
and get through the remaining of that day. It was day-to-day wages in vineyards and in farms. But you had these absentee landlords who would make them work out there in the fields, mow the fields, uh, grow the crops, and then they would bilk them at the end of the day. And they could do that easily. They weren't even present. It really was heartless injustice, which is why you have verse 4, which says, For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who have harvested their fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. And we'll go back to that. Luke 16 is obviously talking about a rich man and Lazarus because it really moves from heartless injustice to heartless indifference. What James says in the second part here is your luxury is causing you to be spiritually anesthetized, spiritually dulled to people around you who have such need. And you're just so apathetic. He says what? You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Luxury can make you cold and calloused to people in need. And these words are a warning sign, really, for all of us in a culture of luxury. Our, percept- our perception, really, of, of how we treat other people can really become skewed. We can let ourselves be influenced by materialistic culture. We can be cursed by it. That's why Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything. And it's interesting to me that even since the days of Jesus, things haven't changed much. You go four centuries after Jesus... Uh, I found just the other day a quote from Ambrose, uh, the bishop of Milan, who led St. Augustine to Christ. And in the middle of a sermon, he just goes off on this tirade, and he says, There is your brother naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. That's fourth century. In some ways, things have not changed much. Well, you have the arrest and the charges and then the testimonies. Or testimony, but it's really testimony of three different groups that you find if you really unpack this passage. First of all, the testimony of wealth itself. Isn't this interesting? The second part of verse 3 says, The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. That sounds like Amos. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. But not just your wealth is going to testify against you, you also have the victims. Verse 6. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now, that's one translation. Most manuscripts, though, say this. Instead of who do not resist you, this is New Living Translation, most of them say this. You have condemned and killed innocent people. Aren't they now accusing you before God? What is that saying? People who have passed on before you and are standing before God are not just giving an account of themselves, but they're testifying against you. You've already got a bad rap in heaven before you even get there or before the judgment seat. That's what it's saying there. You've got the testimony of wealth, victims, and you've got these, these uh, well, and let's say the, the testimony of, the God, of, of God's army too. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. What that's really saying is it's reached the ears of God himself and what in the Old Testament is called the heavenly host. They've heard all this stuff about you as well. Severe testimony, yes. Just this past week in my missiology class, summer missiology class, we finished the book, The Hole in Our Gospel. How many of y'all have read it or are familiar with it? A lot of us I know here have read it. It's a powerful, powerful book by Richard Stearns, the head of World Vision. It's, it's the most convicting book I've read about anything missional uh, in a long time. 
And uh, the students are really getting into it. And we had just finished the chapter entitled 100 Crashing Jet Airliners. And, and, and what it talks about is what if on Google News this morning or on ABC this morning or whatever, you heard a news report or read about a news report that basically said 100 jet airliners crash yesterday, 26,500 people killed. Would that not be alarming? Well, what if that happened every day? What if it happened today and tomorrow and the next day? In a sense, my friends, it does. Because every day, that's how many children die of preventable causes due to malnutrition and poverty. 26,500 each and every day. And I had a student in my class say, Dr. Barnett, I don't know, we, we get so mad about, and so uh, uh, things are so disruptive and disappointing when we hear about shootings in, in, in theaters and at army bases and other places, and that is horrible. But then we've got nearly 27,000 kids dying every day when they don't have to because we are way too much into ourselves. These are preventable causes. And if we could just give up ourselves as God wants us to, we could change that. But it just doesn't register because we come dulled to it. And then he went on, and I thought, wow, okay, calm down. But he kept going. He said, man, this whole thing, we talk about culture wars now these days in America. Pick your hot-button topic, and we talk about culture wars. But after reading this, Dr. Barnett, you know, you know what the worst culture war is, at least for me? My culture war is against me becoming a cultural Christian. I thought that was sharp. You know, we have this war that whether or not we know it, maybe in a very subtle, maybe dull way, there's this war raging within you and me where we just would rather just acquiesce to church culture. We show up. We check off the list, we pray, we sing songs to God, we give a little money, and we go home. We feel good about it, but there's so much more to it. And what he was saying was, as Amos said, we are at ease in Zion. We have a sense of apathy, and we're just going about it in a church culture kind of way. And I think that student was right. That's our worst culture war, really, is the war of us possibly becoming cultural Christians. But God is hearing the testimonies of these people against people who just don't have anything to do with God, let alone helping other people. Could have been help, but they shafted people in this life, and God hears their cries. Even God's armies hear it. And you've got victims who will testify against them, who have testified against them already, and will testify against them. You remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? They'll be testifying against the people who wind up being the goats. I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me drink. I was sick and you did not visit me. So you have an arrest and charges and testimony and finally the verdict and sentence. The verdict and sentence. Well, the verdict is obviously guilty. James wouldn't be coming on so strong unless the verdict was guilty. But then you get to verses 2 and 3 and you really have the sentence here. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. Now, in James's day, there were three ways that you acquired wealth. One was hordes of grain. Another was caches of garments. Another was precious metals. But he says, your grain is going to rot. Your garments are going to be eaten away. And even your gold will corrode and tarnish. If you study back then, there was a geographer and philosopher named Strabo who was a contemporary of James's who talked about this vapor that arose from the Dead Sea that would actually cause gold to corrode. So they were familiar with what James was saying. In the long run, 
We fail to realize that all this stuff we have doesn't last. In the long run, it doesn't matter. And how quickly our attitudes can really change to that, given the right context, given the right crisis, if you will. Uh, how quickly it can change. Uh, in World War II, there was a huge uh, mountain of a rock in the Philippines that the Allies were uh, occupying called Corregidor. And some of y'all might even remember this or been involved with it, but Corregidor uh, was being invaded by the enemy, and they realized, we, you know, we can't hold this place. And so they realized they needed to get rid of anything that could be conceived or perceived as being of worth, anything that would seem precious or worth something. And so they wound up uh, burning a lot of stuff. The main thing they burned, because they happened to have that there, was they found themselves uh, bundling into nice big stacks these huge bundles of, of currency, American currency. They were burning huge, huge stacks of $100 bills. And there's a picture of one guy who rolled up one of those uh, $100 bills and actually lit his cigarette with it. He said, I always wanted to do something like that. And he lit a cigarette with that $100 bill. Again, how things can change when faced with aspects of life or death. And you realize all this stuff, all this money does not matter. And things don't matter either. I'll never forget reading a memoir, memoir by Dr. Roy Lawson talking about when he was on a family vacation and he was going to be there just a little bit late but the rest of the extended family was there and his new son-in-law was trying to back the boat down the dock to put it into the water but he was using a new Jeep that was owned by another family member and he really didn't know how to use it properly and he put it into the wrong gear and long story short the boat, the trailer, and the Jeep went into the water and were submerged. And Roy said this, when I got on the scene, a wrecker had just pulled the Jeep out of the water and it was gorging water. And my son-in-law was sitting on the bank with his head and his hands just absolutely devastated. I was so emotional, so thankful that he had not drowned. I wanted to comfort him. I knew he felt terrible, but I couldn't emotionally get settled down to it. Was it because of the Jeep? He said, I bit my lip and just walked away for a little bit. And the son-in-law saw his new father-in-law do this, and he was all the more crestfallen, just so upset. Well, another family member saw this and went over and sat down beside the son-in-law and threw his arm around him and said, you've got to understand, when you lose what this family has lost, it's just a Jeep, and Jeeps don't matter. You see, the year before, Roy's son, who was in his 20s, had committed suicide. And several years before that, his adopted child was killed in an automobile wreck. So the family member turned to this son-in-law and said, you know what, when you lose what we've lost, you come to realize something like this, it's just a Jeep. But in the everydayness of life, you and, you and I, we can become consumed by materialism. And sometimes we don't even recognize it, but we've got to learn to get to the point of recognizing the wor worthlessness of things, the ultimate worthlessness of things. Now, again, for the godless, it's describing a crime. But for believers, it's a curse. And we can let that materialistic influence just begin to infiltrate us in such a negative way. So where do we start? How do we deal with this? I would, again, suggest that we burn into our minds and our hearts. I mentioned the whole in our gospel. What was our first theme that first year? The whole church taking, help me, the whole gospel to the whole world. What is this year's? It's three words. It's all his. It's all his. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's all his. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24, 1. 
Let me challenge us today, though, to, to consider it this way, that it's not just all his, but a surplus of what we have is not ours, but belongs to those people in need. Can I just offer that up? Uh, I like the way uh, Basil the Great said it. He was bishop of Caesarea in the fourth century. And he said this. He said, the bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. The garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who is naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. The money you keep locked away is the money of the poor. And speaking of barefoot, close with this little story. My wife loves Jen Hatmaker. She wrote uh, the book Seven, the book Interrupted. Anybody heard of Jen Hatmaker? Anybody? Okay. Wonderful writer. Her husband, Brandon, is pastor of a large church in uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, she wrote how a guy named Shane Claiborne had really messed up their life because he was encouraging them to live what's called the simple life. Uh, Shane does this up in inner city Philadelphia. He's an amazing Christian activist. There's a wonderful book he wrote called The Irresistible Revolution. And he really is a radical in the sense of giving everything he can away and just living very simply for Jesus. He's a pretty well-known guy, especially to younger generations, highly respected. Well, uh, Brandon, Jen's husband, uh, sent him an email one day saying, man, we respect you so much, you've just totally messed up our lives, thank you very much. And uh, Shane emailed back, he didn't think he'd hear back from Shane, but Shane said, hey, I'll be down in Austin in a few weeks, I'm preaching at a church uh, uh, with a funny name, what is it, Vox Vinay, I think is the name of it. And he said, it's a very diverse church, kind of in the city, and I'll be preaching there Easter Sunday evening. Would love to meet you guys. And, and Brandon was like, oh, yes, we'll put everything else off. Now, you need to know, Brandon and Jen uh, oversee this, this big church. That Easter morning and afternoon, they had had six Easter services that were packed out, mega church kind of thing. And uh, they were pretty exhausted at the end of it. But they went across town to this church called Vox Vinay, And uh, Shane got up there to speak. And they hadn't met Shane yet, but he got up there to preach. And toward the end of his message, he said, by the way, let me just interrupt myself because I was in San Antonio yesterday hanging out with uh, the largest homeless community in San Antonio. Just spent uh, the, the day with them. And I asked the homeless people there, what is your greatest need? And immediately he said, every one of them whom he asked said shoes. They said, yeah, we, we, you know, we appreciate the shoes we get, but a lot of times they're kind of cast-offs from Goodwill or something, and they're not strong they're not in good shape and that's why so many of us have chronic leg and back problems if we could have some sturdier shoes that would be just incredible and Shane shared that with this church in Austin and said I tell you what please do not feel coerced into doing this but at the end of the service if anyone feels led as you're going out uh, bring your shoes uh, to the altar and just leave them here and I'll see to it that uh, because I'm going back to San Antonio tomorrow I'll make sure that they're delivered there for these homeless people in fact uh, give us your socks as well, if you would. We'll, we'll wash them tonight and to take the socks uh, to them as well. And uh, the funny thing was, Jen and Brandon, <laughs> they looked at each other and laughed because they had just bought their, their, their precious, most ultimate cowboy boots, okay? And they were really excited about having those. This was the first time they wore their cowboy boots, but they looked at each other and thought, well, that's what we're called to do. And so Jen said she took hers off and kissed them and hugged them one time, and then... Uh, she said, you know, they came up uh, as everybody else was exiting out and placed their boots and their socks at the front altar. And I'm just going to, she puts it so well, I'm just going to read what she said. She said, I will not do the moment justice, but at the close of the service, I watched all these smiling people gladly walk barefooted out into the cold. I failed to mention 
That was an unusually cold Easter back in 2007 in Austin, Texas. That morning it had been 31 degrees, okay? I watched all these smiling people as they gladly walked barefooted out into the cold, and I heard Jesus whisper, this is how I want my church to look. I want her to rip the shoes off her feet for the least every single chance she gets. I want an altar full of socks and shoes right next to the communion table. I want to see solidarity with the poor. I want true community rallied around my gospel. I want a barefooted church. A barefooted church. And my brothers and sisters, so should we. Let's pray together. Almighty God, make us a church that is willing to give more of ourselves uh, than the world will. Forgive us when we become almost narcotized to the needs out there due to this drug of things, of money, of preoccupation with all of that. We thank you for people who are indeed rich, who use their resources selflessly for the sake of those who are in need, especially those who need to know the gospel of your son. But Lord, help us to live better and be a more self-giving church always willing the well-being of the other person, just as your son Jesus taught us to do. May he be our example in giving. It is the least we can do when we consider what he did for us, dying naked and poor on the cross. Motivate us now to be a more giving people, O oh God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.